You're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. There's some kind of nuclear holocaust or whatever it is, some kind of thing that would attack the earth and, um, and ravage the population of the world. And, and, and the authors spend a lot of time talking about <clears throat> um, buildings and edifices and, and all these different things that, that we know and are, are landmarks for us today, how they would survive the years, the weather, um, the whatever kind of holocaust it was or, or anything like that. And, and there's, it's just interesting to me, um, you know, the things that we build in this world are the tall skyscrapers or the the massive dams or or whatever you know how erosion and how time and weather and and all these different things what that would do to to the things that we build and ultimately I think the author's that I have read or the movies that I've seen come to basically one conclusion. They come at it from different angles, but they come to one conclusion that there is not one wall, there's not one building, there's not one thing that is man-made in this world that will not at some point in the future eventually fall. There is no wall that will ultimately fall, even though it might be imposing, even though it might be long-standing, even though it might be intimidating. There is no wall that will not ultimately fall. All the walls of this world will fall eventually. And... And if you think about it, I mean, I can actually even back up what I'm saying. If you know a little bit of history, I know that some of you don't like talking about history, but I do, and (laughs) I get to talk. Uh, Everywhere you go, you find walls that were once very, very formidable. You find walls that were strong. You find them that were, they're intimidating, and they're high, The people in their day thought that those walls would never fall. And yet, to this day, all over the world, archaeologists continue to unearth walls that are not standing, but rather that have fallen. Think about the great empires that we we study in school or that we read about (coughs) in books. They would go on. um, People over the years have thought of those empires and they've thought these, these empires will never fall. Great empires like uh, Egyptian empires and, and their walls, the Grecian empire and their wall, the Roman walls, the French walls, the German walls. Think about November 9th, 1989 when a group of people stood around the Brandenburg Gate and they said, Tear down this wall. 
there was nobody. I, I know that many of you don't even weren't even alive in 1989. I was, and some of you were. And I don't know if you remember that night. But before that day, there was very little indication that that gate, that wall in 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 Berlin, would ever fall. That there would always be an East Germany and a West Germany. That communism would always be there. And yet that wall fell. One radio station in West Germany, in West Berlin, on November 9th, 1989, said this. As the wall fell down, as people were chipping off, uh, you know, just little stone fragments from the Brandenburg Gate, they said this. It is like Christmas and New Year's. And Easter rolled up into one. And even more impressive than anything else, that wall fell without one shot being fired. It stood for years and years and years, not only dividing a city, but it divided a country, it divided a world, and that wall fell down. And you know what? If you look into Scripture you will find the same thing. You will find walls that have, have fallen. And as I was thinking about that this, this week, I was thinking about the idea of, of walls in general. And I thought, why, you know, why did we have a wall here? Or why did we have a wall here? Or, or a wall there? Or, or wherever there were walls. Why did we have those walls in the first place? Robert Frost, in one of his poems, he said this. <coughs> Excuse me. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in and what I was walling out. Before I, was, before I built a wall, I would ask to know what I was walling in and walling out. In, uh, Egypt, the, the nation of Egypt, the empire of Egypt, they should have asked what they were walling in and what they were walling out. And they didn't ask that question for 430 years. But essentially, they were walling in the Hebrew slaves, right? The, the, the slaves that they had taken. While the Hebrews lived in abject slavery until Moses came, they were walled in by the Egyptians and then Moses came and then by the power of the living God, we read in Exodus that that wall, figurative as it was, that wall came tumbling down, right? A few years later, Moses is gone. Joshua is standing in the promised land and he's looking at the vast and the formidable walls of Jericho. And those walls came tumbling down. Jericho wasn't held by, by walls, actually. Those walls were nothing in the presence of the living God, right? But, I mean, as you read on in the Old Testament, what you're going to find is that there are more walls Jerusalem's walls looked formidable for a long time through David and Solomon and the divided kingdom and Jerusalem stood. It seemed like nothing was going to, to be able to, uh, to get through those walls and to get through that empire. But you know what? Nebuchadnezzar came along and he dropped those walls with such ease 
The text says not one stone stood on top of another. It fell down flat. Joshua 6.20, if you cross-reference those two, <laughs> what you're going to find is that that's the same thing they say about, uh, about Jericho. Not one stone stood on another. The walls fell flat. Empires upon empires. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> once he took Jerusalem and all the other all the other nations that he conquered, he said it would never happen to him, and actually it really actually didn't happen to him because he went to graze with the cattle. But his son, Belshazzar, he thought his kingdom would never fall. And then he watched a hand, a disembodied hand, write a message on the wall that said, your time is done, your days are numbered, You've been weighed and you've been found wanting. And that night, that very night, King Darius came along with the Persians and he built another wall and another empire. And suddenly we had the Medo-Persian Empire and that, that one would surely last. That one would be the one, right? And it did last until Alexander the Great came along and defeated them. Nobody was going to take Alexander the Great until Julius Caesar did. Nobody was going to take the Romans and their walls, but they all have fallen. My point is this, and maybe it's a belabored point, but I've got to keep you engaged. All walls fall eventually. All walls fall eventually. Corey Ten Boom said this, there is no pit so deep that he the Lord is not deeper still. All walls finally fall. And I would say not only are, am, I, am I talking about government and empire and all those things, I'm also talking about the fact that you and me, we have walls. And some things we wall in and some things we are trying to wall out. But all walls eventually fall. Chuck Swindoll paraphrased Corey Ten Boom and he said, there is no wall so strong that he, the Lord, is not stronger still. All of these thoughts and all of these all this talk about walls, it brings us to the history that's connected to the eighth chapter of Esther. <clears throat> what does it all have to do with Esther? Well, quite a bit, actually. Because Esther chapter eight is a chapter where we see we, where we see a heart that is so hard, it seemed as though it would never change. And it changes all the same. The wall of that heart, it came tumbling down. This is also a chapter where we see an edict or we see a law <coughs> that was set in concrete by the law of the Medes and the Persians. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. It was imprinted with the signet ring of the king, King Ahasuerus. And it seemed like that, wall, that law would never be able to be revoked. 
the wall of that law, the wall of that edict came tumbling down. And this is a chapter where we see a scene on how Jews, as they lived, they lived somewhat in, in Persia, they lived maybe not quite the same, but they lived almost like slaves, like, like people in concentra- concentration camps. And they were, <coughs> they were waiting because of that law, they were waiting for this final death knell that had been promised by Haman. This was a scene that was so dark, so depressing, so gloomy, and yet somehow God turned the lights on and he brightened it. So here's what I think this, <coughs> here's what I think this chapter is telling us. Three things. There's no heart so hard that he cannot change it. There is no writing so permanent that he cannot erase it. And there is no scene so dark that he cannot brighten it. That's a pretty solid three-point sermon right there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just think about these things this morning... I pray that you would help us to, <clears throat> more than anything else, Father, I pray that we would, be, we would be honest with each other and that we would be honest with you. Because ultimately, Father, I know that you're going to be speaking to our lives, that your spirit is going to be teaching us, your word is going to make itself relevant in the things that we go through day by day. And I pray that we would hear from you and that we would, uh, we, we know that we will hear from you. It's so important that we would be listening. We pray that we would do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, the heart. There is no heart so hard that he cannot change it. Take a look at Esther chapter 8 and verse 1. We now have gotten to the point where that pesky banquet that we were leading up to uh, all those weeks, that, that banquet's over, all right? And uh, the eating is done, and, and now it's, it's the cleaning up time. Esther chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him what he was to her. And the king, <coughs> verse 2, took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. King Ahasuerus. Okay, King Xerxes in some of your Bibles. Talking about the same guy. Think about where this guy has come in eight chapters. Where he's come from the beginning of this book where he was a self-centered egotistical drunk who was just so inner focused that all he cared about was that people would think that he was great and and he would bring his kind of cronies around him and they would drink together and laugh together and he would brag about how great his life was and then when something bad happened and somebody disabused him of that notion and they said well you're really not all that good then all of a sudden 
he starts to pout and he goes to war and he gets a bunch of people killed because he's so egotistical that he thinks he can't possibly lose this war and he loses a lot of men and then he comes back and he pouts more and people start you know, bringing, you know, oh, it's okay, king, and, and, and all this sort of thing. I mean, that's just in the first chapter. And then he moves on, and he gets duped by this guy, Haman. He thinks he's a great guy, and he, I mean, he's so inner-focused, and he's so focused on just, you know, himself and his selfishness and his pride and all these things are getting in the way of, of noticing that this guy is taking over. And not only is taking over, but he's plotting and planning genocide because of his hatred for the Jews. All those things are happening under the nose of King Ahasuerus. And, and he, just, he just continues to be this I, I, I don't even have the words to, to describe him, but he's just, he's so useless at the beginning of this book. And then all of a sudden in chapter 8, after all these things have taken place, and it seems like Maybe he's not so self-absorbed as, as we think he is. He's finally coming to his senses. And what does he do? He changes his mind. Everything that had been happening had been because Haman had been plotting and because King Ahasuerus had, had just been being stupid and prideful and all those things. All those things were happening because of, of, of sin, hatred, and 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 pride, and, and all these sorts of things, they were happening. Genocide was about to happen because of his pride. And then in chapter 8, it says that he changed his mind. This is a man whose stubbornness was legendary. He was self-absorbed to a fault, and yet here he is, after listening to Esther's plea, he's seen it that Haman, the recently appointed prime minister, is, is hung And the king who touches uh, Esther with the golden scepter and says to her, I care, I'm listening, I know, I want to know what I can do. He's the one who gave the house of Haman to Queen Esther. Do you see the difference? Do you see how different King Ahasuerus is in, in chapter 8 than he was in chapter 1? Because in chapter 1, it's dark and depressing and gloomy and all these sorts of things. And you think nothing's going to change. The situation is dire. And then in chapter 8, it's completely different. What's my point here? <laughs> I think I need to get to a point. And the point that I have, I, I hope it's super clear. I, I would say this, there is no heart so stubborn that God cannot penetrate. There is no heart so stubborn that God cannot break through it. And I think this chapter is telling us that there is no match for the living God. Proverbs 21, we've quoted it before. 21 verses 1 and 2. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wills. 
Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. See, the king's heart, we would say, <clears throat> in other words, I would just say this, the king's heart was like mush <laughs> or, or soft clay or putty in the hands of the Lord. God was never out of control. Nothing in this book, nothing in your life, nothing in my life ever takes him by surprise. There's not one person in this world that we think that man is so hard-hearted, that woman is so stubborn that God cannot break down those walls. There is no heart so stubborn that God cannot change it. I mean, take... Proverbs 21, verse 1, the, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. Maybe, maybe replace that with, a, with another name. <laughs> maybe your name. Or, or maybe even there is someone that, that you are... Uh, we don't like the word combat here, but um, maybe there is someone that you are at odds with. And you don't know why. Uh, I was listening to uh, <clears throat> another preacher preach on Esther, uh, chapter 8, this week. And, uh, and they shared about this, this guy in, in their congregation who was just intent on hating and destroying that pastor. And he didn't know why. And he never, ever understood why. He didn't think that he had done anything wrong, but that man just hated him. I think of a guy that I met a long time ago <coughs> when I was camp director out in Saskatchewan. And he did not like me. And I know I'm not super likable. I, I totally get that. And, and maybe I, um, I, I don't think that I did. Well, I, I found out something later. But anyway, for the sake of the story... Um, I would just say this, that um, he made it his business to be wherever I was and to criticize me. Um, and he, you know, the very first year that I was at that camp, he and his wife came on staff to be the secretary and maintenance man or whatever, and he was there the whole time, and he would criticize everything that we did. Everything that I did, he would say, that's wrong. That's wrong. And he would just beat me down. And it, it got so frustrating. I didn't know what to do with him. I found it later that he, uh, before I even came on, he wanted to show me the camp. And so I went with him and his wife and I sat in the back of their car and they took me to the camp and I, I brought a book along <laughs> and, I, and I read a little bit from the book and he was so offended that I read from my book instead of being attentive to what he was saying. Whether that was rude or not, I apologize, but it changed our, our relationship dynamic. The whole, and later on, he's, he's with the Lord now. But we, did, we were able to sit down and, and kind of, you know, repair a relationship. 
And I honestly think that there was a point where I just thought there is nothing that I can do, there is nothing that I can say that will ever change this man's mind. And then I think because I am a little bit that way myself. I think about some of the people that I have been mean to or have I have intended to drag them down and I have made them feel like that man made me feel. I felt a, a great deal of shame this week as I thought about some of the relationships that I've had over the years. And the Lord just kind of tugged on my heart and showed me my stubbornness. And not that I want that for you, but I pray that God will do that for you if it is needed. There is no heart that is so stubborn that God cannot change it. And sometimes it's needed. Uh, <laughs> I think about the document, the law, secondly. Look at verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king, and he fell at his feet, and he wept, and, and she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. So everything in this chapter, what we're noticing, right, we notice that, that there is a, there's a silver lining or there is some light on the horizon, that things are, are starting to change, but then... We read verse 3, and we see that Esther is still quite upset. Why do you think that she's upset? She's upset because everything is not sunshine and roses here, because there is still this law in effect in Persia that could ultimately cause the genocide or the, the, the killing of her people. That law did not die with Haman. It was still in effect. I mean, think about, uh, think about the book of Daniel. And uh, we read about in Daniel, even in, in Daniel chapter 6 alone, you get, you get these words three times. Sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Daniel chapter 6, verse 8. Verse 12. The statement is true according to the law of the Persians and the Medes, which may not be revoked. Daniel chapter 6, verse 12. Daniel chapter 6, verse 15. Recognize, O king, it is the law of the Medes and Persians that had no injunction nor stu uh, statute which the king establishes may be changed. Daniel 6, Verse 15, it is written, it will be done. Haman may be gone, but the edict, the law, it is still intact, and the Jews that are in Persia are going to die in December. <coughs> and so Esther weeps because it is a document that looks absolutely permanent, absolutely irrevocable. Verse 5, it says... 
<coughs> Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, I, and I am pleasing in his sight, let an order be written to revo- revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadathia, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were all in who are all who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming for my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? You wonder if there's a law or a a, a wall that is so thick that God can't penetrate it. You wonder if there's, there's laws or documents that were written in that day just as documents and laws and, and things that maybe are even written specifically about you on social media or, or whatever, do you really think that those are permanent ink in the eyes of God? Look at verse 7. Then King Aswera said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. We'll just leave it there for now. In other words, what King Aswaris says here, Here's my pen. Here's my ring. You write to the Jews. You write a new law. You do as you see fit. You write something that is going to counteract the previous law. And I would say, maybe just as an aside, maybe not as an aside, but I would say this. Do you think it's, it's worth standing up against laws that we don't agree with or that are morally baseless in light of the God that we serve? Things like abortion, things like maid, medically uh, assisted in death. I mean, those are just two things. But there are things, and there... There are, there are things happening in our world that, that are contrary to, that are contrary and, and fight against our, our relationship with the Lord Jesus. I mean, Jude tells us that there will come a day when, when the world will depart from the truth that there will be a walking away from the truth. Is that not happening now? Absolutely it is. And there will come a day when us meeting together like this will be a thing of the past. It will have to be done in secret because of the way that the world is going. You can't read Revelation and not see that, right? My point is that even though there are some scary things on the horizon and there are some scary things that are happening even today in our governments and we don't agree with them 
and we can write letters and we can stand up against them or whatever, and I think it's worth doing those things. I think it is. I'm just saying that there is no law, there is no edict, there is, no, there is nothing in this world that God is being taken by surprise on, and there is nothing that scares him. And personally, I think that, I mean, I could even, I, I was just trying to equate this whole idea of, you know, you know I've never had a, an article in a magazine written about me or anything. Not that I want that. I'm, uh, I'm just saying that, you know, somebody could write an article about me and eviscerate me or, or just say really bad things about me. But that happens on social media every day. Have you ever done that? You know, right at the beginning of COVID, somebody wrote something about our church um, because there was an event happening and there were cars at the church. They just drove by the church and they took pictures of all the cars that were out front. And they said, you know, basically criticizing our church for, for doing that. And I have to tell you, in the whole pandemic, COVID, whatever you want to call it, that scared me more than anything else was that people would attack our church for how we were doing this or, or that or not doing this or that or whatever. I was scared about that. And when that post went up on Facebook, I read it and my heart sank and I, I said, oh man, this is terrible. And, you know, and I, I, I tried to respond. I didn't respond publicly, but I, I, found out who sent the post and I privately messaged them and I explained what was going on and you know it worked out okay <laughs> I'm just going to say that and, and we had a really good conversation but my initial reaction when I saw that thing online was man this is, this is going to ruin us people are going to in their community are going to not trust us anymore and they're and people in this community are going to be mad at us and and they're not going to want to talk to us on the street and i i overreacted big time (laughs) i did (coughs) but the lord wasn't taken by surprise it didn't scare him didn't scare him in esther here I would just say this, there is not anything that is irrevocable, that God cannot change it, that he cannot erase it. Our time's just about gone. I'm going down rabbit trails, so I apologize for that. Um, We live in this day where documents and media reports and videos can humiliate and intimidate, but I tell you, when God steps in, not only is he going to... Here's the truth. When God steps in, not only will every knee bow before him ultimately, but every lie will be exposed. Every falsehood will forever be forgotten. Be encouraged because you happen to be living under the, um, in a world where God is in control. Even when we think that he doesn't seem like he's in control, he is. And there is nothing permanent that God cannot change. And I love the way this chapter ends. I like stories where everybody lives happily ever after. In the city of Susa, it didn't seem like that was the case. Or in the 126 provinces of the, the Persian Empire. But 
I mean, I already said that everything wasn't sunshine and roses there because this law was still in effect, but God was engineering through King Aswaris and Mordecai and Esther and all these sorts of things that, that the new law was going to counteract the old law. It was a very dark scene that God shone some light into. It was like Berlin on the, the 9th of November. It was Christmas and, and New Year's and, and Easter rolled into one. Verse, uh, verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced and the Jews had light and gladness and honor and joy. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the people of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews that were following on, falling on them. <laughs> so my point, I, and I think, I, I've hoped I've, I've been clear, that, that there is not a heart so stubborn and so dark that God cannot change it. There is not a, a media report. There is not a social media hatred-filled diatribe. There is nothing in this world that God cannot help to rectify and to, re, to replace or to erase or, or whatever it is. I'm not saying that in the, in, in the interim, it's not going to be painful and it's not going to be hard, but God didn't promise us that everything would be sunshine and roses. Because we know you come from a, a, an experience where you know that life is hard sometimes. And sometimes we just have to endure. And so I would say this, do you come here this morning <coughs> from a place of gloom and depression and darkness? Has your life become tragic when others go home on Sunday to a home that is full of love and warmth? You go home alone. And you find the awful memory of broken relationships or guilt or remorse or whatever it is. And then you read a scene like this. This story unfolds and, and you say, man, I would, love to be of, I would love to be there. I would love to be singing in the middle of that crowd. But I, I just need us to understand this, that Esther's story is not this irrelevant piece of history that we just read and go, man, that was an awesome story. I love the way they did this and I love the way they built to the climax and I love the, the, the denouement and I, and I love all these different things, these elements to the story and it's a great story. Close the book. It's not just a story. It's telling us about who our God is and how he, he is in control. And he's weaving his sovereignty through your story and my story and this story. Walls fall every day. And so it is with our lives. You may not know it. <clears throat> you may not know it, but God might be in the process of breaking your will. Or mine. And I want to tell you what seems unchangeable 
this, your situation, I want to tell you that it's not unchangeable. I want to tell you that whether it is someone else that you are having problems with or you are having problems with yourself, the stubborn will, it could be your own. You may be one of those individuals that has determined that you are going to go your own way and you are going to sit on your own throne. No one's going to stand in your way. Let me be clear. I fully recognize that this is a touchy subject and I want you to understand that I say this to you as, in, as, as lovingly as I can. No one likes to be told what to do. No one likes to be told to be criticized for the way that they're approaching life. And stubborn people tend not to listen to uh, this kind of talk, but I want you to hear it. Chuck Swindoll once said this. When God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible person and crushes him. A.W. Tozer, he said much the same thing in one of his books. He says, it's doubtful that God can use anyone greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And it sounds unnecessarily cruel, but it's not cruelty. Please be clear on that. It's sovereignty. It's God's sovereignty, and we don't understand it. We live in the midst of it. It just so happens that God wants to use you. And your will and your stubbornness and your pride and your sin, it doesn't scare him. I say this to people that I love today. Some of you, (coughs) you are children of God, but the way that you live your life does not show that. You will not give in. And I say to you, you are no match for God. He will break you. He will bend you. He may even have to crush you because because he wants you. He wants your heart. And ultimately, your heart will fall. Every day, walls of depression and doom and gloom, they're penetrated by the wonderful presence of the living God. Psalm 30, verse 6 says this, weeping may endure for the night, or it may endure for your entire life. But hurting people, uh, if you're hurting this morning, I I would say that you have a perspective that that many people that have not been hurt in that way, uh, that we lack. David He said in Psalm 119, verse uh, 67, he said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Man, our time is gone. But let me just say this as I close. I invite you 
to the place of ultimate affliction. It's a place that has blood on it. It once had a man who knew affliction like you and I would never know. He died, he was misunderstood, and he was maligned, but it had to be so that you and me, we could have hope. And so I invite you today to the foot of the cross. I would like you to set aside your stubborn will, whether it is yours or someone else's. I would like you to set aside the gossip and the rumor and the innuendo that sometimes social media contains, or maybe it's a law that is getting you down or an edict, whatever it is that's haunting your days. And I'd like for you to answer this question. Where is Christ in your life? And where is Christ in this situation that you're thinking about? Where is he? If, he, if you are a child of his, that is fantastic. And I rejoice with you. All that is needed is for you to call upon him in this very moment. But if your visit to the cross today is the very first one, then I invite you to give the Lord your life. Because he has sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin, the ones that we have committed, that we regularly commit, and that we will commit. Jesus died on the cross so that he might erase the question and offer you an answer to your unbelief. He died on that cross to give you forgiveness and security and hope. And you are surrounded today by people all around this church that are sitting in these seats. You're, you're surrounded by people in this community, in this country, and in this world who have surrendered their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have given him their wills. They have given them their lives. And they have given Jesus Christ the right to rule. And today is your turn. Amen? Let's pray.